lot of us come from a collective culture versus an individualistic culture. People hear that term a lot. They don't understand how it feels. Like when you're a child, you have so many adults in your life that you don't know who your parent is. Welcome to the Immigrant Experience in America, an immigrant human library, where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants in the United States and around the world. Listen in as we add another story to our immigrant human library. Welcome listeners. I am happy to have another story to add to our immigrant human library. It is that of Raj Sundar. Thank you, Raj, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Raj is joining us from the Washington area, and we're so happy to have him on here to discuss with us today the importance of cultural competency in healthcare and many other things, right? Yeah, I'm ready to talk about it. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. So Raj, tell me a bit about yourself. Uh, introduce yourself to our audience as much as you'd like to share. Yeah, this is sometimes a tough question because in America, I feel like I got used to talking about my profession as the primary thing that I hold on to as my identity. Like you asked me who I am, like I'm a family medicine doctor. But in this context, I think I can talk about my personal identity, which is a South Indian, specifically from Tamil Nadu. I'm really specific about that note, about where I'm from in India, because as with many countries, when you say you're from India, people have a narrow perspective of what it means. And often here in America, it's like chicken tikka masala, lots of dancing, bhangra. I'm like, I'm sorry, our my community is way less fun. <laughs> our weddings are really boring. We don't dance. Nobody drinks because it's essentially forbidden in my region. So the perception of what it means to be Indian feels different for me. I was born in a small village in Tamil Nadu called Tamarankote. Then I moved to the U.S. when I was eight years or old, eight years older, uh, a little bit older than that. And then I've been here since, although initially I was in North Carolina and now I'm in Washington State. Wonderful, wonderful. And so is there a story behind your, you know, what brings your family to the United States? There's varying degrees of like different people's stories. Is there one for you? Yeah, An there's always a story. There's always a story. <laughs> uh, as I said, I grew up in a village which is quite impoverished. So my grandparents grew up in poverty, uh, poverty that that means that you go to bed hungry often. So my parents grew up in that household and my grandfather had a singular determination that we were going to get out of it. And that meant everybody in his family was going to be doctors. Don't ask me where that came from. That's part of the Indian identity. I know that people, a lot of, there's a lot of doctors there. So he educated his children, but also helped educate the other family members in our extended family. So my uncle's a doctor, my aunt's a doctor, my cousins are a doctor, and my parents both are doctors. And as I said, I'm a doctor too. So it was a family trade. So the quote that I often bring up is that when I was growing up, people asked me what kind of doctor I wanted to be when I grow up. They narrowed my potential for the future, just asking me what specialty I wanted to be as a doctor rather than what profession I want to go into. Either way, around, uh, I was born in India, but then my parents chased the American dream. We all sure have heard about that, especially in this podcast. They went to the UK. I was with them for a year, but life was quite difficult. So they sent me back to India. And in India, I lived with my grandparents till I was eight or so. 
And they, my parents, moved from UK to the US by that time, completing their residency, trying to establish themselves as doctors in the US. I was still with my grandparents. And then one summer when I was eight years old or so, I got on a plane to what I thought was to visit my parents by myself. I don't know if anybody has traveled by themselves when they're eight years old, but it meant I was shuffled along and I had to trust random people to take me places. And they had a yellow string around my neck with a packet of everything about me because I was only eight and people would look in that packet to see where I was going. It was like a package being shipped. And then I got to America and actually it was South Carolina where I was for the first few years. I thought I was visiting, but I ended up staying because my parents had actually wanted me to come and stay with them, but my grandparents didn't want me to. So they had said I was just going to visit, but then I visited for a long time. <laughs> I got enrolled in school and that's where my journey in America started. Wow. How interesting. Well, and so how did the grandparents handle this, the, you know, the realization that, you know, you'll be, you'll be staying. There was a lot of conflict. And as a child, I probably didn't understand the intensity of it. I think as immigrants, we all have parents that hold a lot of trauma. In addition, they're often not as transparent with it. I'm just speaking for myself and not to dwell into everything that my family has gone into. It's just the idea that they went through some hard things and it's hard to share them, not only because they never had the language, because mental health and this idea of suffering was such an expectation of being an immigrant or why they immigrated. So it didn't make sense to make a big deal of it. And it didn't make sense to share it with your children because you are hoping they have a better life. So the whole extent of it and what happened, I'm not sure. I just knew that expectation and what had what had what had happened. <laughs> And then eventually there was a process of reconciliation where people accepted that I would be in America with my parents, which, you know, it's my parents, so it wouldn't make sense that I'm with them. Right. Yes, I I, I understand. I understand that. And do how big is your family? Like, uh, do you how many are you? Do you have lots of uncles or lots of extended family? Uh, it's not too big. I, I have one brother, but I have six or seven cousins uh, that were my immediate family when I was in India and my parents were in America. Uh, and then they have some children now too. So I would say moderate compared to some of the other families that I know. Yes. Right, right, right. I was wondering, yeah, mine is yeah, humongous. Dad, one of yeah. 11, mom, one of 12. Yeah. So you can imagine how many grandchildren, my generation, how many cousins, yeah. at least three, at least three. <laughs> For a child, yeah. it's a lot of us. And I get those type of family dynamic where everybody, it's a community and everybody's giving input as to what's most important for everybody. Sometimes the lines are blurred as to who is really your mom and dad because everybody is raising you and everybody has a say. And mm -hmm. it's only as we're here in the United States where some boundaries inevitably start, become a part of our culture in the family where you see my dad's side of family, then you have my aunts, and then you have my uncles. You know, you start seeing those lines. But prior to, we don't know what those lines were. So I totally get that. I think people don't understand what it really means to know that a lot of us come from a collective culture versus an individualistic culture. People hear that term a lot. They don't understand how it feels. Like when you're a child, you have so many adults in your life that you don't know who your parent is. 
So that's powerful <laughs> because you have so many different role models and comparisons. It also decreases the burden on the parent. If you have kids here as an immigrant, it's hard because everything is on you to solve, to figure out. You lost some of your ancestral knowledge and your familial knowledge because I take care of parents, patients like this and they have a baby, they're learning how to breastfeed. In their community, if they were truly integrated, there was so much wisdom there. And here, sometimes in these nuclear families, I'm the only source of wisdom. And it is not as good or as thorough as sometimes families and traditions carry with them. Yes, I get that. I, yeah. I went through that too with my first child. I was away from home, states away. And if I were around my aunts and everybody, you would have every day, there would be somebody cooking and coming over with meals. I would not have to worry about cooking. Somebody would be cleaning this. Somebody would be saying, do this. Or, But I had to figure it all out. I had to hire a doula to really help me through the birthing process because I was so scared. I didn't know what to expect. And I felt like I didn't receive the best treatment going through birth at the hospital as well. And I just felt like, oh, this wasn't the most, I was joyful and everything. My husband was right there with me in the room from start to finish. We were together. We walked through it together. But I felt like I really missed out on my community because I know when I, I've observed, for example, one of my aunts, when uh, she had her, the, the, the ones that I remember most clearly are twin daughters. And I mean, it wasn't only our family, but the community in which we lived, like everybody came and people were doing laundry and people were cooking and everybody was chipping in. It was just like this whole, and it's so beautiful. That's the beauty of being a part of a collectivist culture. But in that, it comes also with the downside too, right? You know, just too yeah. much. We're too enmeshed in each other's lives and lots of other things that comes with, you know, the collectivist culture. And so when we come here, we have the privilege, I want to say, to really find ourselves and and say, this is healthy for me. This is not healthy for me anymore. And you define those lines, but then you also sacrifice all of the other benefits that comes with being a part of that large community too. So yes, I've been going through that, contemplating it, throughout this podcast. I post about it all the time on LinkedIn <laughs> yeah, yeah. because this person whom I'm becoming and then my daughter's being raised in a um, two-parent household. But I, I was raised around a lot of people, a lot of love that was so insulated in a bubble. I mean, she sees cousins and everything when there are planned events, holidays or yeah. birthdays. You know, people aren't really just next door anymore. And so, well, I do miss that, that part of it. Yeah. And there are many things that you said I could reflect on. I think one thing I wanted to add was how it is a privilege now uh, talking about the downsides of a collective culture is now I have been in America for a long time and I have kids who are quite young, yes. less than two, less than three. Uh, the question that I have to think about is what do I cherish and what do I celebrate in my culture that I want to pass on? Uh, what do I want to shed from my culture that were sometimes toxic and not did not contribute to our well-being? In, in, in Indian culture, I told you I was from a village. There were such gendered expectations, including I grew up where 
the men ate first and the women served food and then they ate later in the kitchen right that that is like a specific wow. manifestation of how gendered expectations can be most of india is in that way that is from my village obviously in my generation most people don't do that that's just being a clear example of we can honor our culture but don't have to bring in everything it's not a full package and that is um kind of the evolution or transformation that i've been thinking about of how do i choose what's been great and beautiful in my culture to my children right and this hybrid of person of the person that we're now becoming partly previous culture and now the united states it's a privilege to be able to choose the healthy parts of both cultures it's a privilege yes i recognize that it's it's yeah. the beauty of um being in this land of opportunities and being able to earn where you are now able to afford to do so much more for your children and also be healthy as an adult, seek the support that you need, whether it's therapy or whatever, and then recognize those things that that, that don't really uh, support or serve you well. So it's it's such a beauty to be able to do that. I, re- I want to recognize that as part of the American experience. Yep, exactly. And so moving on, I wonder, you shared a bit about the culture in your village, but um, can you give us a sense? You said a, the name of the village that I honestly don't recognize. I don't I think most people would. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's, so it's, give us, go ahead. It's close to Chennai, formerly known as Madras. Oh, okay. Yes, I know Chennai. Okay. Yeah. And or I've heard about it, but don't know it intimately. So give us a sense then for what life was like. Do you remember the culture? Um, like what were fun things you did as a kid? Just like, you know, being in a blissful place just as a child. Like give us a sense of what that was like. Like what's the culture of food? Um, how is it different from the other parts of India? What's the language that you guys speak music i've i interviewed somebody from gujarat and he mentioned about it being very agricultural they're vegetarians and things like that but what was your part of india like each region of india is so different i I do find mine is quite unique zooming out a little bit there is difference between north india and south india Mm, okay everything from the darkness of your skin and your genetic background Mm. I'm not a historian, but what I've heard is that there's more Aryan ancestry without the, maybe that's not the exact word because it's going to jog people's memories of something else. But the genetic history is of that race, while the South India is from the Dravidian ancestry. So people in South India tend to be darker and our languages tend to be quite diverse and very regional. For example, Hindi has closer roots to English and some of the other Romance languages compared to my language, which is Tamil. Tamil's letters are so different that most people can't even recognize it. And it's really hard to learn. Mm-hmm. Tamil is what I spoke growing up. And the songs that I listen to are Tamil. Or we have our own movie industry called Hollywood. <laughs> uh Oh, interesting. With a K. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we have our actors that we love, like Rajinikant and Kamal. Some of them actually become international stars because our movie industry uh, did get some airtime because of the movies we created. Uh, but when I was growing up as a kid, the memories that really stuck with me, as you noted, it's often of food and celebrations. 
for food, think about my grandmother's cooking. Something about grandmas. I feel like everybody has a story of their grandma <laughs> and how they treat them, right? <laughs> and uh, and I love my mom's cooking too. But my grew up my grandma, and she used to make this dish called appam, which is how do I explain it? It's a combination of rice flour and some uh, lentils and grams. But you eat it with coconut milk and shredded coconut. So it's a sweet dish and she would make it for breakfast. I love anything with coconut milk, one. <laughs> so you can, can imagine how much I loved that as a kid. Yes. Uh, and the thing with my grand grandmother who grew up in the village, uh, we actually eventually moved to the city. And a lot of my time was in Chennai rather than the village, is that she was a stay-at-home wife. So she would get up, cook breakfast. We would all eat and then she would clean up and then start cooking lunch because everything was a fresh home cooked meal. She would lunch and maybe nap a little bit and then start cooking dinner. <laughs> and then everybody was fed. She would clean up and then um, take some time to watch a soap opera, which was one of our favorite things <laughs> until nighttime comes. So this dedication for feeding all of us and how much care and love she put into food, because that is the thing she did. Mm-hmm. One thing when you're a child, you don't acknowledge how amazing that is but those memories when i when it when they come to me i think about that specifically in addition to that we have our own holidays like pongal which is the celebration of harvest uh which is a specific dish um there's a sweet version and a savory version uh it uses jaggery which is a specific kind of indian sweet probably all dishes many people haven't heard because in America specifically, a lot of the Indian restaurants have a connection to Punjab, Punjab. So they have chicken tikka masala and naan, and then they slowly evolve to American taste of what will get the most business. People often don't get to taste other regional dishes in India. So you may or may not now, there's more dishes in some South Indian restaurants that you can taste like dosa. You might have heard of that, which is uh, also a crepe-like dish that you eat with chutney, sambar, mm-hmm. Um, and different dishes like that. And then idli uh, and puri. That's another one. It's just like fried bread that expands. My ignorance about all the ingredients, because I don't make them, I just love eating them. <laughs> and as I said, my grandma used to cook for them. But those are the things that I, I think of when I think of like my childhood memories. Yes, beautiful, beautiful. I could taste that coconut dish that you love so much from your grandma I have such fond memories of my grandma my paternal grandma Mm -hmm. cooking and uh she would just you would see her sitting somewhere and we would all be playing and she's sitting and uh, you know she's calculating what's for dinner or she's resting from whatever she was doing and um and whenever she cooked boy it's finger licking good I mean, yeah, she had, yeah. she had 11 children and she had even the, the community, other young men who grew up with like my dad's generation would talk about how they would come to our property to play. And they could tell when my grandmother was finished cooking, no matter what houses they came from, everybody was eating. And so the joke within our family is we don't know how to cook small because we have already such a big family. But then my grandmother was cooking and she would always say, I'm cooking a little extra in case so-and-so come along or if anybody extra come along. I would try to cook for my husband and my daughter and I'll have all these leftovers. And I'm like, you know, and I would joke and say, you know, you know, what, the Johnsons, we don't know how to cook small because we're always cooking <laughs> just in case somebody else comes along. 
So I get that. It's such um and I miss it. I miss those days. I'm not gonna go into that. But I wanted to ask you, and perhaps you might be the person, I've been thinking lately and I've heard um, somebody who visited India for the first time and she was expressing her experience of um, kind of interest and also sadness with just the way things are in the country. I've never visited, you know, I've had varying experiences with just Indian Americans throughout my time here. So you mentioned um, different parts of India, dark skin and whatever. And so are you comfortable to just tell us, educate us about the caste system and what, like, how do they determine, like, how do you just look at, you know, in such a diverse country, like, how do you have such a system? How does it work? Like, to me, that doesn't, I understand like racism and um, prejudice and how things whatever that system is that whoever created it that exists here in the United States, like systematic racism and how people say, okay, lighter skin and whatever. I kind of understand that. I'm now coming to understand it more, but the whole caste system in such a diverse country, like how is it by family? Is it by shades of skin? Like, can you tell us, educate us, how does that work? I'm no scholar on this, but through my lived experience, I will say that Caste is hard for people to understand because it is hard to see compared to, as you noted, racism, sexism, which is based on perceptions and who you are as a person. Caste only has associated characteristics. Like, Mm -hmm. I know you're in a lower caste because you seem poor. I know you're a lower caste because you have dark skin. And it's not 100% correlation but there's some history to this. There always was some form of caste system in India, even before British colonization. But after after British colonization, it became codified a bit more because establishing a codified hierarchy is easier to control. There are some bases of that, of racism in America as well, right? So in India, different castes also become associated with different professions, like the lowest caste were the untouchables or the Dalits. People may have heard of that, who often clean toilets, worked with things that potentially are people consider disgusting and cause contamination. So they were untouchables compared to the highest caste, which were Brahmins, who were often priests. So they were the holiest and we hold them in high regard and honor because they're the holiest and closest to God. And eventually that became embedded in the system and people started to show prejudice and discrimination depending on who you were. For example, you are an untouchable, you don't deserve to be a doctor. So you don't even get a chance to get the education you need to apply for a position like that. So it starts to reflect somewhat the experience of racism in the US as caste-based discrimination in India. So for me, specifically, my family is traditionally what we call the farmer class. Our family has a long history of tradition of being farmers. So we're not, quote unquote, as low as untouchables. We're not as high as the Brahmins. Because of working outside, I think our people are often darker. So I think the color of your skin soon became associated with the caste too. And then it became uh, highlighted as a way to establish the hierarchy and colorism became a huge thing in India. All of these problems or things that we experience now has a long history 
but I hope people can understand that intersection of all of that and how caste-based discrimination continues to happen in India. How do you recognize somebody as untouchables? Are there names? I mean, like, are there features? Like, how do how did this group get placed in this group in the first place? Yeah, I don't know the full history, but it became associated with professions a lot of like what jobs you were doing. And it had a history of like family professions being handed down generation to generation. I don't know when it originally started, but that's how it became embedded uh, as people people doing certain jobs or associated with certain castes. Right. Wow. 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 Okay. I think I would ha- I would need to travel to kind of get a sense for, I love Indian food. Love it, love it, love it. And uh, still on, that's on my list of places I'd like to see in my lifetime, right? While I'm here in this side yeah. of the realm. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. As you guys came over, you're here, you know, your parents happened to bring you, we worked out, decisions made, you're staying. How, how was it for you adjusting in those uh, years at eight, right? You came over at eight. Do you remember what it was yep. like as a young child, like, you know, learning the language and going to school for the first time? It was hard because I initially went to a Catholic school and I originally grew up in a Hindu household. So I came here, went to a Catholic school and my parents chose it because it was one of the quote unquote better schools there. They had uniforms that I wore. And imagine me being eight years old, being introduced to America this way. I thought all Americans wore uniforms to school and went to a school where they went to Friday mass because I just had such a small understanding of where I was as a country. Uh, So I would go to mass every Friday. It was such a culture shock because it was so drastically different from how I knew life was, especially as a kid. It also changed who I was connected to because I grew up with my cousins who I was really close to. And one of the memories that I have in India with them was playing cricket on the weekends with them. We would play it in one of the one of the alleyways that was close to our house with a tennis ball. So not a real cricket ball. If people don't know what cricket is, you have a flat bat that you hit a ball with. The ball is actually quite hard and you need a large field. But we would just play with a stool <laughs> and a tennis ball so you could hit it as hard as you can. <laughs> and uh, play it with just three people. But I had a lot of memories with them and a deep connection with them. And then I came to America and I felt uh, alone, although I was with my parents, but I hadn't been with my parents for so long that it was rekindling that relationship too. Then I had to figure out how to communicate with people. Uh, And I actually knew English because I went to a school that taught English. And I thought, I thought, I thought I knew English, but I came here and I knew the British English, which is different from American English in small and big ways. Small ways. I remember one time somebody asked me what grade I was in. I was like, I don't know. I don't know what that means. Like, what is grade? Because in the British system, we talk about standards. So first standard, second standard, third standard. Mm-hmm. And that communication gap was felt so large, even though I knew English, because I couldn't answer some basic questions. Uh, when people were trying to ask me or when you call trucks lorries and that's what i learned in uh, india that's what the british say uh and when people were talking about trucks i had no idea so these big gas was like also shocked me that i thought i knew a language that seemed different here too so i guess your profession was already decided for you right because (laughs) yeah you know that yeah the journey to my profession was that 
hey Raj, you're going to be a doctor. You better decide which one you want to want to be when you grow up. Right. Uh, no, yeah. and I can see the benefit in that because you guys already have the the experience of like you know your parents doing it, people in your your uncles and aunts probably the experience that comes with you being able to tap into that as you go along that profession, as opposed to someone who's journeying on a path for the first time, it can be challenging. So I I see the benefit in doing that too, but what if it's really not what you like and you really really hate it? Then then here I comes know. the downside. <laughs> it's like arranged marriage, Simone, right? <laughs> that's another story (laughs) yeah there's a there's some trust and faith in when you're choosing something that you're not sure if you chose for yourself that's why i used a metaphor of arranged marriage because there's some part of your elders knowing what's best for you not saying they're always right either way in my story that i did choose to become a doctor although i studied business and had some other experiences, ended up being a family medicine doctor. My evolution has been attempting to figure out what it means to be a doctor because coming from an immigrant family, I think this is also a common theme. You came from scarcity sometimes into a place where you had to build a life and make a name for yourself, which meant there was a lot of how can I support myself and my family? And what does that look like with money and resources? And my transformation has been, what does it actually mean for me to care for my community? Because I think I'm actually quite privileged now. And I don't need that same philosophy of life or mindset that my parents had uh, at this stage or at this um, storyline of our family history. Join us again next time for part two of this episode. Friends, as always, please subscribe, comment, and share if you enjoyed this interview. If you're passionate about telling immigrant stories, our team is looking for help. If you're willing to help with podcast production, social media, or Patreon management, please reach out to us. You can also donate on our Patreon if it's easier for you. All the links are in the description below. Thank you. We thank our listeners around the world and we appreciate your continued support as we build our human library. Please remember to give us a five-star review, subscribe and share with your friends, family and circle of influence.